Back in March, when all this coronavirus stuff first started, I remember I still had a lot of hope. Sure, I I couldn't see my friends. I couldn't travel to see my family who live in a different state. I had to take my recording equipment for this podcast home. I had to watch Easter Mass from my couch. But I was making sacrifices, and those small sacrifices would pay off in the long run. More people would be protected from the virus, and soon things would be back to normal. There was talk about returning to the office in the summer. My family made plans to visit in August. Surely things would be normal by then. As this pandemic has extended week by week, month by month, I've felt that hope for normalcy fade. And it's made preparing for Advent and Christmas really hard. I'm sure a lot of you feel the same. I just wasn't expecting this to last this long. This week on the program, we're going to take a look at why the season of Advent can give us some renewed hope. Why the season of Advent should be celebrated, even in the darkest times. We'll share the story of a German Jesuit who clung to the hope of Advent despite his imprisonment and execution by the Nazis during World War II. We'll talk about the Advent Festival of Lessons and Carols, and we'll listen to some beautiful music by the choir at Wyoming Catholic College. But first, author Kendra Tierney shares how her family celebrates the Advent season at home, and how you can celebrate at home too. CNA feature writer Mary Farrow has that story. You're listening to CNA Newsroom, the podcast that brings you the people behind the headlines. My name's Kate Oliveira. I'm executive producer of this podcast, and I'll be your host this week. A lot of us depend on parishes to organize events for us or, you know, friends and family members to throw parties. But but there are really beautiful things we can do in our homes. This is Kendra Tierney. She's a Catholic author who lives in Los Angeles with her husband and their 10 children. And I have a thing for liturgical living in the home. <laughs> Kendra even wrote a book about it, The Catholic All-Year Compendium. She keeps a blog by the same name, and Advent is her family's favorite season. I, I just, I love the Advent traditions that feel like they're building to something because that's what Advent should feel like. It should feel like waiting and it should feel like anticipation. The Tierneys have a few classic Advent traditions, like the Advent wreath. They cut clippings from evergreen plants in their yard to make a homemade Advent wreath each year. You get that smell of of the evergreen and hopefully get some pine cones and seed pods that, that symbolize, you know, rebirth. And you get the evergreen branches that symbolize eternal life and, and the candles that symbolize that light in the darkness that, that is Jesus' coming. There's also the straws for baby Jesus tradition, where the Tierneys gradually fill a play manger in preparation for the birth of Christ. We have a little wooden manger that my dad made, but you can. we started off doing it with just a cardboard box. The kids drop a piece of yarn or paper into the manger every time they do a good deed. Or they come when they're called, or they you know, clean up their socks without being asked, or maybe the first time they're asked. All of those good deeds that they do, all of those acts of service, all of those acts of obedience become the soft bed that the baby Jesus will lay in when he comes on Christmas. 
And it really, it's a really sort of tangible thing that the kids can learn, you know, what you do to the least of my people you do to me. Kendra and her family also make a point to decorate for Christmas slowly. Kendra says it helps build the anticipation. And this is something that really was a change for us. I used to, you know, as soon as the Thanksgiving leftovers were in the refrigerator, you know, we'd get the tree and we'd turn on the carols and we'd do all the decorating. These days, they set up a new part of their nativity scene each week. And they try to make a lot of decorations by hand. I am not a big one for doing, you know, crafts and baking and things with the kids. I kind of prefer to shoo them out of the room and do that stuff on my own. But during Advent, we really do we really do it together. And we try to make our own slightly wonky wreaths and, you know, cut snowflakes out of paper and use those to slowly decorate over the course of Advent so that it feels like a time of waiting and a time of preparation. But her family's favorite Advent tradition is their Christmas novena, nine days of prayer ending on Christmas Eve. We, we really we sit down every night as a family and we pray together to really prepare our, our hearts and prepare our family for, for the incarnation, with this, which is such a huge thing. It feels like a lot, um, I, I think, when you read it or hear it all at once, but somehow it really works out for us. Kendra enjoys incorporating the liturgy into her home today, but it was a learning curve for her and her husband. My husband and I were both baptized Catholic, and we grew up with all of our sacraments and going to the Mass, but without really any of the of the devotional practices or sort of cultural Catholic influences. And it was definitely something that we wanted to incorporate with our own kids. They started with Lent and a family rosary. And I was I was looking for sort of resources and how to manage these goals that we had for our family. I started coming across these beautiful, joyful celebration type Catholic practices that were also a part of that sort of deposit of faith. And I realized, you know, if we're going to learn to do the fasting, we better also learn to do the feasting. And if we're going to have a real no kidding Lent, then we better have a real no kidding Easter too. She learned about the Advent wreath, the straws for Jesus, and the Jesse tree, which she wouldn't attempt with her family for many more years. She also learned about some lesser-known Catholic traditions. One that's really fun, I think, is um, the tradition of eating waffles for the Feast of the Annunciation, which you know doesn't really seem to fit, but it's a it's a really widespread practice that they still call it Waffle Day in a lot of uh, Europe. It comes just from the fact that they call it they call the Feast of the Annunciation Lady Day. Lady Day and Waffle Day sound a lot alike in Scandinavian languages, and so they just decided they better eat waffles for the Feast of the Annunciation, which I really support. Kendra uses the tradition as an opportunity to talk with her kids about the Annunciation. And why it would be something that we would commemorate with something that feels special, like eating waffles for dinner. It really has been foundational for for our family just to make our faith part of the rhythm of our day and our week and our year. And that way, being Catholic isn't something that, you know, you check on a hospital admittance form. It isn't just like having to get to Mass on Sunday. 
it's who you are and it's things you do. And it's, you know, it's just part of your identity. I think that that's our main goal as parents should be that our children would be saints and that if we want that for our kids, then we want them to stay Catholic. And if we want them to stay Catholic, then being Catholic can't just feel like one choice among many. It has to feel like, you know, something that's true and real and important. For many families this year, Advent and Christmas plans may look different than normal. The coronavirus pandemic is preventing many social gatherings and even changing family events. While I recognize that that this is going to be a tough Advent and Christmas for a lot of people who are going to be separated from family and separated from their usual activities, there's always a silver lining to that. And, and I think that it can be really hard for families who are trying to focus on Advent as a season of preparation and waiting. You know, that's hard. Uh, this hard message to get across when you're going to a Christmas party, you know, a couple of times a week, all of December. And I would just say to people, things that you really don't want to give up, th- things that you're that you're really suffering the idea of of losing, you know, don't don't give those up. Do them at home. Like a nativity play. Kendra loves nativity plays, but her parish never organized one. One year, her husband reminded her that they have ten children. And then my husband said, well, why don't we just do one here? We have a lot of kids. <laughs> yes, we do have a lot of kids. We should do it. So um, I have a little uh, nativity play script that I put together that's all just quote, just the exact quotes from you know Luke in the Bible um, and Christmas carols that fit in with different moments in the nativity. But we just put on dad's big t-shirts and... And we sit in the living room and we put on a little nativity play. And so we don't have to miss those things that that make it feel like Christmas to us. Try to see that blessing of of sort of turning inward and and using this time to build build the family culture that you want to, um, you know, to focus on on the beautiful traditions of, of our faith that, you know, that are so important, but are so hard to get to when we're usually so busy and so scheduled. But yeah, I think this is the year, you know, if you were ever going to bake cookies, if you were ever going to make a gingerbread house, if you were ever going to get to a Christmas novena, you know, this is the year. You can do it. For CNA Newsroom, I'm Mary Farrow. Ever since he was a little boy, Christopher Hodkinson's advents have been filled with music. Some years he has listened, others he has performed. These days, he directs the choir at Wyoming Catholic College in their presentation of a traditional carol service, which originated in the Church of England. The Festival of Lessons and Carols has been a part of Christopher's spiritual life for many years. There's always a wonderful sense of the year having come round again to that point. It's just like taking the decorations out of, out of your cupboard. Um, you, you take all those, those good, familiar, beautiful things that you've, you've hidden away um, and you take them out again. So for me, especially when you see the herald service in, in Advent, um, there's a sense of, of preparing yourself to celebrate the feast once again. Today, the Festival of Lessons and Carols is performed across the world, but its roots go back to 19th century England. To, to understand where, where, where this whole thing comes from, we, we have to actually cast our mind back quite a long way to the 19th century. 
before the 19th century, in the, in the Church of England, hymn singing was quite an unusual thing. That changed with the influence of the evangelical movement and the Catholic movement. Hymns became a common feature of parish worship. And that really provided an opportunity for England's great tradition of carols to come into the church. Um, nowadays, we probably hear carols sung in the church most of the time. That's probably the place we hear them most often. But in fact, in the 19th century, they were understood to be a secular repertoire. So that's not, not secular in the, in the modern debased sense of the word, but rather secular in the old sense of the word. So a, a repertoire of, of music, certainly most of religious, but meant for performance outside the church. Carols were, were in the 19th century typically sung by carolers who would, um, who would meet and often go from, from place to place, from house to house, singing carols at Christmas time. The carol service as we know it today developed near the end of the 19th century at the Anglican Cathedral of Truro in Cornwall. Where, at the direction of the, the bishop, um, Edward White Benson, in the year 1880, he turned sort of the, the meeting of, 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 um, of singers, the Cudal Choir singing, singing carols, into a service with a, with a proper order and with the carols separated by readings and with, with prayers at the beginning and end. That format from 1880 is more or less what we, what we still know and love today. The program was picked up by the Dean of King's College, Cambridge, in 1918, and then it spread across the world. And so, how does the Festival of Lessons and Carols actually go? Typically, the program begins with the carol, Once in Royal David City. It's probably one of the most special moments of this service, if that is singing that hymn, because the, the custom at, at King's College, and many places have followed it in imitation, is that a single boy chorister standing at the back of a church um, sings the first verse of that hymn before the choir takes it up and they, and they process to the east end of their places in the stalls. It's a moment of, of course, of, of, of high tension. It's clearly a, a daunting thing for a little boy to sing that solo. In, in King's College, in fact, there's a, a custom that the boy is only told about five minutes before the service begins, but he's been chosen to sing the solo. So he doesn't have time to get nervous. After the first carol, there is an introductory prayer. And then... What follows is a series of readings, um, which of course in the traditional English word called lessons. The festival traditionally includes nine readings, showcasing the story of salvation history, beginning with the fall of man in Genesis, and hence the, um, the whole reason why, why we were in need of a saviour, and ending with the prologue of the Gospel of John. It's crowned with the, with the grand theological context, after all the, the familiar parts of the Christmas story have been told. In between each reading, or lesson, Carols are sung. Here is Wyoming Catholic's choir performing in Dolce Jubilo, which is Latin for in sweet rejoicing. In Dolce Jubilo, sing with hearts of Um, an example of quite an old tradition in, in, in carols, um, it, it, it's what's called a, a macaronic carol. It switches between languages back and forth in this, this very playful way. Here is Wyoming Catholic's choir performing another traditional carol, A Babe is Born in Bethlehem. This carol originated as a Latin hymn as early as the 13th century. A babe. 
One of the great strengths of the cover repertoire is the, the way we have so many sources of these, this music that the repertoire itself contains a kind of summary of the, the whole history of, of our religious culture, uh, which is which is rather beautiful. At King's College, the customers of the last two carols are, are first of all, O Come Only Faithful, and then finally, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. So it, it has a, a very upbeat and, and triumphant ending. Christopher said the readings and carols can be modified. It's customary for the festival to be performed on Christmas Eve, but Christopher's students can't perform on Christmas Eve because most of them have already traveled home to visit their families. So Wyoming Catholic performs the festival typically in the second week of Advent, and Christopher will adjust the readings and carols to reflect the season. Another, of course, reason to adapt it here is, is that the whole history I told you about the, the carol, of course, is, is, a, is a history of the Church of England. It's a, it's a Protestant history. Um, one which, nevertheless, is one that Catholics can respect and indeed love because it is one that that draws um, upon so many Catholic sources along its way. But one could take that further. So, for instance, when choosing readings, I, I might also choose readings um, from the from the fathers that speak about the birth of Christ, for instance. Some Catholics will adapt the festival to end with Eucharistic benediction. And so the service transitions from hearing the word of God and singing his praise to actually worshipping God. So that's a, um, a form of the carol service that I, that I rather love and one which in many ways is a better um, fit with, with, with the, sort of the Catholic sense of, of, of devotion. For Christopher, the Advent Festival of Lessons and Carols is a beautiful tradition he looks forward to year after year. Although Wyoming Catholic's choir is not performing the festival this year because of the coronavirus pandemic. Of course, it's not just the, the beauty. It's, it's, of course, um, spiritually refreshing for us to reflect each year upon the, the themes of the Christmas story. Um, we know it so well, we can, we can really forget just how um, vital and life-changing it is. The mystery of, of new life, the... Um, the humility that God shows in taking on human form. Um, these are are such such beautiful themes. After the break, the extraordinary story of Father Alfred Delp. Stay with us. Friends, listeners, Twitter fans of Carl Bunderson, this is Carl's best work friend, Peter Zalasko. I'm the social media manager and arbiter of all food arguments at CNA. What can I say? My opinions on food are always correct. If you enjoy CNA Newsroom in your car, during lunch, or on the run, be sure and subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. And then force your friends to do it as well. Seriously, come on invite them. Subscribing is easy and free on any podcast app like Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and more. Just open the podcast app on your phone, then search for CNA Newsroom. Click on the subscribe button. That way you'll get our podcasts as soon as we post them. Now, back to the show. And I'm going to go have some pie. 
In the waning months of World War II, deep in the heart of Nazi Germany, a young Catholic priest languished in a prison cell awaiting trial and a likely death sentence. The charges against him were false, and his trial, which began soon after Christmas, would prove to be a sham. As you'd expect, all this made for a somewhat subdued advent for the Jesuit priest, Father Alfred Delp. But despite his ordeal, Father Delp was able to keep a diary of spiritual reflections and meditations, a diary that continues to inspire readers to this day. He writes about the beauty of God becoming man at Christmas, and how that fact gives meaning to the burdens and sufferings of this life. He writes about the profundity of true conversion to Christ, and how Jesus can fulfill the deepest desires of all humanity. In his meditations, he, he always refers only in oblique ways to the situation that he was living in in Germany at that time. This, by the way, is Mary Frances Cody, a Canadian writer. In the meditation for the first Sunday of Advent, Delp uh, writes this, Even when things are going wrong, and I'm quoting here directly, even when things are going wrong, Advent is a period from which a message can be drawn. May the time never come when we forget about the good tidings and promises, because we're so stuck within the four walls of our prison that we see nothing but gray days through barred windows. If we remain stuck in this state, he continues, we'll be living in a state of bankruptcy, and hope will die in our hearts. So what we need to do, he says, is to cling to the hopeful words of Angel Gabriel at Annunciation. And then he says, throughout these gray days, go forth as a bringer of glad tidings. Mary first learned of Father Delp in the early 90s from a book she picked up at a sale at her local library. It was a copy of the 1962 book, The Prison Meditations of Father Delp, with an introduction by Thomas Merton, the famous American Trappist monk. It was actually the Advent meditations that struck me, and uh, I kept looking through it and looking through it to find out something about uh, this Father Delp. But Mary couldn't find much in the way of a biography of Father Delp. She came across a name in her research, Father Roman Bleichten, and wondered if he could help. She didn't have much luck reaching Father Roman by phone. Mary was in Toronto, but she had plans to be in Europe that summer. So she thought, maybe she could just pay him a visit. So in May 1994, Mary found herself on the doorstep of the Alfred Delp House in Munich. I knocked on the door of the house where he lived. And, um, you know, I mean, you kind of sometimes you just do that sort of thing uh, if you want to find out a thing badly enough. Luckily for Mary, the priest was home and invited her in. He answered her questions about Father Delp, and then he brought out one of Father Delp's letters for Mary to see. And it was tiny. I mean, it, it was folded up into tiny, like a, almost like a large postage stamp. That would be a whole letter. They had to be very carefully hidden uh, as long as the Nazis were in charge. But yes, after the war, um, it, it, it came to be realized that uh, that these were very valuable, uh, very valuable documents, especially spiritual documents, for sure. Father Delp spent five months in prison, and during that time, 
he wrote dozens of secret reflections following the church's calendar. He saw Advent as uh, a symbol of the human life, the human journey, uh, and the longing, the yearning, the searching, um, the, the, the hoping uh, that, that every human person goes through throughout the course of their life. And uh, so Advent was a very important season for him uh, for those reasons. If you think back to late 1944, Germany, the Allies were bombing every single night, uh, and there was devastation everywhere. Um, and But when you read these meditations, you can read them as if he's referring to whatever your situation happens to be now. Throughout these gray days, go forth as a bringer of glad tidings. He could have written that in 2020. And so a possible lesson from a prison cell in Nazi Germany 76 years ago, try to be a bringer of joy. Alfred Delp was born in Mannheim, Germany in 1907. He was baptized Catholic, but raised a Lutheran. At the age of 14, Alfred left the Lutheran church and received his sacraments. He joined the Jesuits in 1926 and was ordained a priest in 1937, just two years before the Nazi invasion of Poland kicked off the war. He spent several years working for a Jesuit newspaper in Germany until the Nazis shut it down. He became rector of a parish in Munich, and soon after, Father Delp joined the Kreosaw Circle, a group of about two dozen dissidents who were planning for a new Germany after the inevitable fall of Hitler's regime. They knew for sure that that um, regime was going to fall, and they wanted to be uh, part of building a new Germany. And so they were in, in meetings talking about the new constitution and uh, that kind of talk. Father Delp and two other Jesuit members of the Creosaw Circle flew largely under the radar until a failed attempt on Hitler's life in July of 1944, which, of course, none of them had anything to do with. But after the failed assassination attempt, the Nazis worked to arrest anyone with ties to the resistance. Father Delp and the other Jesuits' names came up very quickly. And uh, the other two Jesuits went into hiding. Uh, Delp did not. And he was arrested a week later, uh, January 28, July 28, of, uh, uh, after the uh, assassination attempt. It's unclear why Father Delp didn't go into hiding, but Mary suspects it was because he was hoping to still make his final vows. But the Nazis arrested him outside his parish in Munich before he could do so. He was taken to Berlin, where he was interrogated and tortured for several weeks. In September, Father Delp was sent to a prison in Berlin to await his trial. It was there that Father Delp wrote his reflections under extraordinary circumstances. Yeah, I mean, it was incredible what he, what he accomplished. He made friends with the guards. Remember, it was not a Nazi prison as such. And so um, um, the guards became friendly with him, and, and once in a while, the guard would loosen uh, his, hands, his handcuffs for a few hours so that he could be, you know, have his hand free. But for the most part, he was writing with his hands in handcuffs. Thank you.
The letters were then smuggled out of the prison by a few women who were in charge of Father Delp's laundry, and sent to Delp's most trusted friends back in Munich. Father Delp used the liturgical calendar as his guide. You know, he's in prison and it's Advent, so he wrote um, a, a meditation for the first Sunday of Advent, the second Sunday, and so on. And then it was Christmas, Christmas Eve. He wrote a meditation for Christmas Eve, and then Christmas Day, uh, and then in, on into uh, the Epiphany of 1945. And um, so he was following uh, the church calendar. Two days after the Feast of the Epiphany in 1945, Father Delp's trial finally began. Mary said the priest prepared for the trial as best he could, under the impression that it would be fair. But in fact, it was just simply uh, a show trial. Uh, it was an opportunity for the judge to show off, to, to show off what a good Nazi he was. And uh, so, uh, so Delp was, um, uh, he was condemned to death for treason. In most cases, execution immediately followed a death sentence. But instead of execution, Father Delp was sent back to his prison cell. In the two weeks that followed, Father Delp wrote several more meditations. He wrote a meditation on the Lord's Prayer. Um, he wrote another meditation on the, um, the, the Litany of the Sacred Heart. And he wrote one, uh, one that I absolutely love, which is on, um, the, on Pentecost, on the Holy Spirit. And uh, so those he completed in January of 1945. But on January 23rd, nearly two weeks after his death sentence, Father Delp went silent. After that, there, there's really very little in the way of letters even uh, from him. Mary believes he stopped writing after hearing the news of the executions of several other members of the Creosaw Circle and the news of the arrest of his provincial superior. So it's as if he um, uh, either he wanted to just give himself up for prayer in um, preparation for his own death, or maybe he just didn't, he, he no longer had the creative energy to do any more writing. On February 2nd, 1945, Father Delp was hanged. Though Father Delp lived several decades ago, during a very different time in history, Mary believes his reflections, particularly his ones on Advent, can bring solace to Catholics navigating a pandemic today. There is so much despair that cries out for comfort. There is so much faint courage that needs to be reinforced. There is so much perplexity that yearns for reasons and meanings. If you can find any candles amid the rubble all around you, light them. The Advent candles are a symbol of hope. For CNA Newsroom, I'm Jonah McKeown.
CNA Newsroom is a production of Catholic News Agency, a service of EWTN News. I'm Kate Oliveira. I'm a producer for this podcast, and I've been your host this week. Our other producer is Jonah McKeown. A very special thanks this week to Kendra Tierney, Mary Frances Cody, Christopher Hodkinson, and Wyoming Catholic College's choir for sharing their music with us. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a rating and a review. We'll be back in two weeks.